Deuteronomy 17 verse 14 reads the following. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, and that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Fathers, we head into First Kings tonight. We pray your spirit would be our teacher and our guide. I thank you ahead of time, Father, for the words that, that you have. I thank you for the words that you gave me and shared with me today. Just you and me and, and your word and no commentaries. It was, it, was, it was fun, Father, and I thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts now and give us ears to hear. And pour your word into us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first and second Kings... Continue in the historical narrative of Israel, just as we studied in 1st and 2nd Samuel, or as one commentator did put it, and I looked this up when I got home, he called it the theology of the history. The theology of the history. Not, not specifically a history, because you need to understand, when we study the Hebrew Scriptures, we're not studying a history book. This is not about names and dates and boring history like many of you had to suffer through. I suffered through U.S. history in high school. Boring. And U.S. history is not boring in and of itself. But our teacher who I've mentioned before, Mr. Skidmore, boring. And I never understood why you had to learn these dates and these names and who cared about what happened then. And, and, and I would feel the same way about the Bible if it were just a history book. It's not. It's a, it's a theology of the history. The history is there, but the history that we're given is not the whole history. We don't have every single thing that happened in Israel. We have what God selected for us to know that happened in Israel. Because as Paul taught us, and we've returned to this many times, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says these things are here, written here, for our example, so that we could learn from them. So the Lord, as the history of Israel is unfolding, begins to speak to his prophets and say, I want you to say this. I want you to tell them that. Because as my people begin to come back through and study my word, there are certain lessons and understandings and things I want them to have. It doesn't matter that they get every single thing that happened in history, but they understand me in history and what I'm doing. What we learn from the past and the people and the prophets is much more than history. It's what the Spirit of God wants to speak into our lives. And that's why it's here. And that's why we have this book. Now, First and Second Kings originally was just kings. They got changed to First and Second Kings divided, like First and Second Samuel and like First and Second Chronicles coming up after it. It was Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. But it got divided by the writers of the Septuagint. That's that Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. About 300 years after the original copies of Kings was written. 
So it's, it's divided up to make it a little easier for the reader. And Jewish tradition holds that Jeremiah the prophet wrote Kings. Now, Jewish tradition holds that. I tend to lean that direction. I think that's probably the case, that Jeremiah was the writer of the books of Kings. Tradition also states that he wrote this before the fall of Judah, which we're going to talk about. It will come up at the end of 2 Kings and the destruction of the first temple in 586 B.C. But again, we need to remember every time we point out a human writer for a book, and we do this pretty much every book we start out, we try and figure out, okay, who was it that wrote this? Who was the human writer who put the pen to the paper or the ink to the parchment? We always go there, but we have to back up and remember the author is never the human writer. Jeremiah did not author this book. If, in fact, he was the writer, the Holy Spirit of the living God authored this book for us. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 1 tells us the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard, saying, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Listen to this. He says, Call to me, and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. And I'm just telling you this because I'm excited about it. When I sat on the airplane today, I called to him and he answered me. And he told me great and mighty things that I did not know. I didn't have time to pull out commentaries on my computer to study for this. And so I just began reading it and saying, Lord, what does this mean? Lord, tell me. I called to him and he answered. And he does that. He does that today as as actively as he ever has, if we will but call to him. He will answer us and tell us great and mighty things which we do not know. And I'm, I'm stunned to discover how little I know. The older I get, the less I realize that I know. The more I study scripture, the more I realize there is so much that I have no clue about until the Lord reveals it. And he wants to do that. And so the books of Kings... First and second things, as we study through, remember that the Lord is speaking to you personally. He has great and mighty things He wants you to know. Call on Him and He will answer you. Now, whenever we begin a new book of study, I like to find a key verse, a single verse or a couple of verses in the book that really speak to the whole book. And we have that again in First and Second Kings. I want you to look at First Kings chapter two, verse three. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, which I believe are the key verses. This is the focus. And we'll come back to this time and time again throughout our study of First and Second Kings. Chapter 2, verse 3. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in His ways. If you underline anything tonight, underline that. To walk in His ways. To keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, and His testimonies according to what is written in the Law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. So that the Lord may carry out His promise which He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. See, God said that to David. Now David is saying it to his son Solomon. He's passing along this truth. You see, beginning with Solomon and ending with Zedekiah, the kings, for the most part, do not follow God's prescription for a successful rule. They don't follow this key verse. Solomon himself doesn't even follow it. What is the key rule that God had for the kings of Israel? The key rule was walk in my ways. 
Walk in my footsteps. Walk in the way of the king and you will be successful as a king. But they didn't do it. And over and over, this verse will come up in different formats and different ways. I have the verses written up there, and you can read these on your own time. 1 Kings 3.16 and 14. 1 Kings 8.25. 1 Kings 9.4 and 5. If you go over to 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 3, it comes up again. Chapter 22, verse 2. Chapter 23, verse 25. Over and over, the Lord returns the kings to this passage, to this verse. Walk in my ways. Obey what I have written. Obey what I said. Be in my word. It's what he said in, in Deuteronomy through Moses. That the king is to take and write for himself in the presence of the Levitical priest. supposed to write a copy of the law. That would be Torah law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The king, when he was first inaugurated, was to sit down with open parchment and write those five books out from start to finish. And then when he had finished writing them out, it was his responsibility, first and foremost, before anything else as king, to study and meditate on that law, on Torah, for the rest of his rule. And the Lord said, if you will do that, you'll be walking in my way. And if you're walking in my way, you will be a great king. And your sons will follow after you. And there will not ever be a day when there's not a king in this line on the throne in Israel. But the kings didn't walk in that way. Which is why a mere 400 years after the death of David, a little less than that actually, both Israel the northern kingdom and Judah the southern kingdom would be extinct. Israel would never come back into play. Judah, after 70 years, would return from captivity, but gutted. Never the power, never the authority, never the glory days that they have, as we'll see, under the rule of Solomon. Great times are ahead in the next few chapters. We'll see Solomon rise. We'll see the building of the temple. We'll see peace and prosperity and wisdom and wealth. It'll be incredible, but it will be short-lived because even Solomon does not walk in the way of the kings. Instead, he chases after all kinds of other things and ultimately ends up, I question whether he ends up even saved because of the way he ends his life. It's a challenging and interesting study through the book of the kings. It all begins with the end of David's days in 962 B.C. That's when David passes away. And the king grows mightily again through the peaceful reign of Solomon, but it doesn't last. Israel divides immediately. After Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam places a heavy burden on the people. Another guy comes along, Jeroboam, and the kingdom splits into two different nations instead of the one that God intended. It splits into southern Judah and northern Israel. The tyrant Rehoboam is down in southern Judah. The, the idolatrous Jeroboam is up in northern Israel. By the way, in northern Israel today, you can see remnants of Jeroboam's rule. There's a, 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 a high place, a stack of rocks circular and a large plateau on which Jeroboam placed the golden calf that people all over northern Israel came to worship during his time. You see, the golden calf was not limited to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. It wasn't just that one incident. It would come up again. And Jeroboam erected this golden calf. And all of northern Israel played the harlot after this golden calf. And you can see the place where it was. That place is still standing in Israel today. It's interesting. 
But as Benjamin Franklin would later point out, a nation divided against itself cannot stand. And so as we'll see, when you get toward the end of 2 Kings, northern Israel gets wiped out. 722 B.C., the Assyrians come in and they will take them into captivity and northern Israel will be no more. They will begin the great dispersion, the diaspora, all over the face of the earth in 722 B.C. And Judah then would be deported for that 70-year captivity to Babylon in 586 B.C. with the raising and destruction of the temple, the wiping out of Jerusalem. Everything is utterly destroyed. You could call this book from Zenith to Zedekiah. From the Zenith of Solomon's rule to Zedekiah being stripped of his rule, you could call it Israel's dramatic journey from divine kingdom to divided kingdom to destroyed kingdom. That's the process of these next two books as we read through. Divine kingdom, divided kingdom, destroyed kingdom. By the way, one of the most important events here is going to be the construction of Israel's first temple into which the Ark of the Covenant would be placed and the Shekinah glory of God will fill that temple. Your Bible students probably know this, but the second temple not only never contained the Shekinah glory of God, but the second temple never contained the Ark of the Covenant. It was never put in there. So it was only in this first temple that God's presence was felt and known. And it was an amazing, wonderful thing. But we're going to ride a roller coaster with the kings as we go through these two books who are more into their own self-importance than they are into the way of the Lord. We're going to follow the ups and downs of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah across these 400 years. And along the way we're going to meet some fascinating people. Some people are very good. And some people are very evil. We're going to see some great leaders like Solomon and Jehu, Hezekiah. And my favorite king among them, who we will find toward the end of 2 Kings, Josiah. In fact, years ago, I wrote this song called Waiting for Josiah. Because as I read through First and Second Kings, just reading the story of the kings, every king, even the good ones, you thought there was some hope for Israel, it's going to get better, and then at the end it says, but they failed to tear down the high places and take the idols out of Israel. Oh, man. And then an evil king would come along and just, it'd be awful. And then a good king would come along, okay, he's going to be the one who's going to restore Israel back to its spiritual goodness, but they didn't tear down the high places or get rid of the idols in all of Israel, and you go, oh, come on. There's got to be someone good. Finally, Josiah comes along. Josiah, a picture of Jesus in many ways. Restoring the word. The word is rediscovered. They didn't even know where it was. They find a copy of the scroll of the law. And Josiah is so excited, he brings that back. And and there's great, great things happening, at least during his reign. So we'll see some great leaders who do follow after the way of the Lord. But we're also going to see some great losers. In fact, in these books, we're going to read about Ahab and his lovely wife, Jezebel, about whom many great songs have been written. And the New Testament points to Jezebel as the picture of a sick and wicked woman. It's interesting to note, by the way, that after the kingdom divides, the kings of Israel tend to be lock, stock, and barrel wicked, every one of them. Whereas the kings of Judah, though not great, there are some good throughout. Kings of Israel wicked, kings of Judah good. What's the difference? Well, the kings of Judah had Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, the Temple of Solomon, and the presence of the Shekinah glory of God. Where God is, there are good things going on. But northern Israel did not have the presence of the Lord. They had idols. 
And so you'll see the northern Israeli, Israelite kings as wicked, whereas many of the kings of Judah are not so wicked. And as we ride along, we're going to encounter some of the great prophets. In fact, Israel's greatest prophet next to Moses, Elijah. He shows up in 1 Kings. And his protege, Elisha, about whom the story is written, and it's fantastic, Elisha, after he follows Elijah, is told by the Lord, what, what do you want? And Elisha says, well, I, I'd like a double measure of Elijah's power. <laughs> and the Lord says, you got it. Elisha was twice as powerful as Elijah. So powerful, in fact, that there were some guys fleeing as an army was chasing them down. They were carrying along with them the dead body of a man, and they didn't know what to do, so they tossed him into a pit. That pit happened to be Elisha's grave, and when the dead body of this man landed on the bones of Elisha, he was resurrected back to life. That's how powerful Elisha is, was. So we're going to read about these amazing prophets. A lot of great prophets will be mentioned throughout. A couple of unnamed prophets, some who are named who you may not have heard of before. You're also going to see mentions of both Isaiah and Jeremiah because now we're starting to get into that time toward the end of the kings where we're getting into the great prophets. And all that's going to happen in these two books. So fasten your safety harnesses, keep your hands and feet inside the roller coaster at all times, and let's begin. I'm going to give you several points to go through, seven actually, of the first two chapters as we leave the station tonight. And the first one is the weakening of the king. This is where we begin with the weakening of the king. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in age. And they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So his servant said to him, Let them seek a young virgin for my lord the king, and let her attend the king and become his nurse, and let her lie in your bosom that the lord, my lord the king may keep warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful, and she became the king's nurse and served him, but... The king did not cohabit with her. That word cohabit, if you're reading the NASB, is actually the king did not know her. Doesn't mean he didn't know who she was. It means he didn't know her like Adam knew Eve. You know what I'm saying? David is getting weak. David is now 70 years old. In the year of his death, he cannot keep himself warm and he's beginning to slip. In fact, you're going to see this because the very next thing to happen happens behind his back and David before wouldn't have missed something like this. But he's starting to lose it. He's weakening. And Josephus tells us that it was customary in the day to bring in a young and beautiful virgin woman to lie with a king in his old age, her body against his body, to keep him warm when he couldn't get any warmth in himself. And apparently, as far as warmness goes, Abishag was a hottie. <laughs> she was one fascinating, beautiful woman. In fact, Song of Songs says in chapter 6, verse 13, Come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. Why should you gaze at the Shulamite as at the dance of the two companies? Solomon's writing that. And so he is making reference to probably, possibly, Abishag, the Shulamite, as this absolutely beautiful woman. But notice, as apparently beautiful and alluring as this young virgin was, David won't know her sexually. He could. He's the king. They brought her to him. She's got to keep me warm. (laughs) I didn't ask for her, but they brought her. What am I going to do? I mean, how many of you guys, if your wife 
let's not even go there. David won't do it. He's not going to know her. And some have said it's because he was just too old. You know, they brought her before him and he looked up and said, I can hardly even keep my teeth in. And, you know, so this is just not going to happen. But I wonder something. I read this over time and time again. I kept looking at this. It says that my Lord the King may keep warm. And I wonder, with the passionate heart of David, if he hadn't finally gotten to that point in his life when he didn't need a woman to keep warm. Instead, not Abishag, but Adonai. He needed the Lord. He had all he needed. Oh, his body was cold. He couldn't keep heat going in his body. But his heart knew the warmth of his Savior, knew the warmth of the Lord. had an interesting conversation last week with Moshe Kompinski in his store Shorashim, which is in the old city of Jerusalem. Moshe is a, is a Jewish guy. He and his brother Dove own this store. And when you go to the old city of Jerusalem, it's, it's there. It's been there for years now. And he loves having groups come in just to talk. And he loves to talk. And Cheryl and I spent two hours in this guy's store a year ago. And now, again, we went back to the same place. We just want to talk to him. He's fascinated. And we got into this conversation about David and Solomon. And he said to me, what do you think, and I'm not going to even try to do the Hebrew accent because I can, but what do you think is the difference between David and Solomon. Or David and Saul, sorry. David and Saul both sinned. In fact, if you compare the sins of Saul with the sins of David, <laughs> David was much worse. You know, Saul did things, but it was more light moments of, of faithlessness, whereas David was breathtaking in his sin. I mean, he jumped off the cliff. He really went for it. And yet David, David is held up as this Man after God's own heart, and, and Saul is stripped of the Holy Spirit. What's the difference between these two guys? Both were fighters. Both were passionate men. But David, David had that, that longing, that thirsting, that desirous passion for the Lord. Saul never had it. For Saul, it was, it was just about doing what he had to do. It was about the job. It was about the work. You could call Saul a legalist, by today's standards. You could say Saul was religious because he did the things that he was supposed to do, but there was no passion, there was no love of the Lord. For David, it was completely different. When Saul sinned, he had just violated the law. When David sinned, he had violated his love for the Lord. In fact, David wrote in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, you only, I have sinned. Speaking of Bathsheba, speaking of what happened with her, against you, Lord, Against you only I have sinned. In Psalm 51.11, then he says, Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Well, what's the joy of your salvation? It's God's presence. To David, the greatest joy in all the earth was just being in the presence of God. That's what he longed for. That's what he wanted. And though he sinned amazingly, he also loved with all that he was. And here at the end of this life... I wonder if David is just thinking, no more women. I just want the warmth of Adonai. I just want to be wrapped up in the love of my father. Well, David is about to know the warmth of Adonai like never before. But before he dies, he has an issue to deal with. Second thing in our outline. Not only the weakening of the king as this chapter begins, but now the wrangling of the king's son. The wrangling of the king's son. Verse 5. Now Adonijah... This is the fourth son of David by the woman Haggit. 
exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with fifty men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. He had conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and following Adonijah, they helped him. So this is a conspiracy that's forming here, gang. But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Rei, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zohilah, which is by, beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, and Solomon his brother. He kept them out of the picture. But he is presenting himself now as the king, and it's, been, it's a conspiratorial move here. Between Adonijah and Joab and Abiathar the priest, they got their heads together and they said, you know what, David named Solomon. Everybody knew Solomon was named to be the next king. This was common knowledge. But Adonijah said, I don't care, I want to be king. And I can outdo him. Besides, I'm older than he is, little pipsqueak. I came along before he did. I can do this. And so he gathers to his side Joab, the commander of the armies. That would be a good thing to have. And, and he gets Abiathar, the, the priest. So he's got now commander and priest. He's got his people around him. He starts to pull in the other sons of David. It's a conspiracy that's going on. But the king is old and weak. And David at this point is unaware that it is even happening as his son Adonijah wrangles a position to become the next king of Israel. Thank the Lord for good friends. Because along comes Nathan. You may recall from earlier studies that Nathan the prophet was not only a godly prophetic advisor to David, but he was also his friend. That David in his free time, in his off time, liked to just be with Nathan. They had a special relationship. And this friend now is looking out for David and he stands up to support number three in our outline, the will of the king. The will of the king. As Adonijah tries to wrangle a position, David still has a will, and his will is that Solomon would be king, and so Nathan steps in to help. Verse 11. Then Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Agit, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? So now come, please, give me you, please let me give you counsel, and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. What does that mean? It means if Adonijah becomes king, Solomon and Bathsheba are dead. He'll wipe them out. He says, Go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. What is Nathan doing? Is he trying to undermine David? Not at all. He's sending Bathsheba first, who, by the way, uh, emerges as the queen mother. I mean, she, she is the, the one of all the wives of David, the real standout queen here. And so Nathan goes to her first to say, look, we need to let David know what's going on, but we don't want to upset him. We don't want to freak him out. We don't want to, you know, snowball him with this. So you go talk to him first, and then I'll come in and I'll confirm it, and, and we'll help him to know what's going on here. So Bathsheba, verse 15, went into the king in the bedroom. Now the king was very old, and Abishag, the Shunammite, was ministering to the king. 
And Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king, and the king said, What do you wish? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, Surely your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Now behold, Adonijah is king. And now, my lord the king, you do not know. He has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king and Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army and he has not invited Solomon your servant. And and as for you now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come about as soon as my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders or sinners or really a threat to the throne. Behold, verse 22, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. Now wait a minute, Rick. I thought you said Nathan was his friend. He was. But he honored David. He's the kind of friend who's willing to put himself beneath, if he needs to, to honor the person in authority over him. And so he bows before David. Verse 24, Nathan then said, My lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons and all the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and they say, Long live king Adonijah. But me, even me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been done by my lord the king, and you have not shown to your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? And then King David said, Call Bathsheba to me. <laughs> Bathsheba's right there. And she's still standing there. He says, Call her to me. I, you know, he's, he's really losing it here. He's getting weak. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king vowed and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, surely I vow to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. I will indeed do so this day. And then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and prostrated herself before the king and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. And he will live forever. In fact, there's evidence biblically that he's going to be restored to a position of great honor in the coming kingdom of Messiah. But in the short run, Nathan is a friend to David who wants to see the will of the king be done. And it reminds me that sometimes all we really need in moments of weakness is one friend to speak up. One friend to step in and support and encourage us. When we're wiped out, when we, we're not thinking straight, when things are happening around us that we're just unaware of, sometimes it's the voice of the friend who bears us up and gives us the strength and the courage and the ability to face what's going on. And suddenly David, as he begins speaking here, and you see in the next few verses, and he begins reacting and responding and placing Solomon on the throne, now he sounds like David again. Now he doesn't sound like this weak, doting old man who, who can't even see if his wife Bathsheba's in the room. No, he becomes King David with the authority to act as king. And all because he had a good woman and a good friend who were willing to speak truth to him. Proverbs 18.24 says, There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. But here's an interesting proverb. 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 27 verse 9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. And that's what Nathan does for David here. He comes in as a friend to support, to encourage, and to let him know what's going on, even if it would be hard for David to hear, because Nathan is a friend who cares about him. David is encouraged. Verse 32, David said, Call me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they all came into the king's presence. And the king said to them, Take with you the servant of your Lord, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel, and blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. And then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne and be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Now you're talking, David. Now you're taking control. Verse 36, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen, amen, lest may the Lord, the God of my Lord the king say, As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord David. And so, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down, those were the mighty men of David, they went down and had Solomon, watch this, Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. Does this sound familiar to you? A king riding on a donkey while the people are shouting shouts of praise. I mean, this is, this is a picture of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is the way it's supposed to be done. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. I'll let you read that on your own, but that's the great story of the triumphal entry of Jesus. As he comes in, riding on the donkey, just as the prophets declared he would, gentle and peaceful. And there's a picture here to understand. And that's simply that the riding of a donkey or the riding of a mule was all about peace. And you Bible students know this, that when a king rode a mule, it was during peacetime because mules really weren't the fastest animals. So out there in the herd, the mule is not the fastest, but the mule was the animal ridden during times of peace. The horse was the animal ridden during times of war. And so here comes Solomon riding the donkey. Solomon's name is Shaloma, peace. And his kingdom will be one of peace. And so as he comes in, he's riding on that mule, the sign of peace, the sign of a peaceful king, which is exactly how Jesus came the first time. He came healing and ministering and serving and offering peace. My peace, he says, I give to you. My peace, I leave with you. I don't give as the world gives. Don't worry, don't be afraid. You got my peace, Jesus said. And as he rode that donkey into Jerusalem, he came in peace. But the world did not know him. So instead, the next time he comes, Revelation 19.11, he will come riding the horse of war. I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So when Jesus comes the second time, it will not be in peace. So there will be peace. In fact, the only way there's going to be peace in the region 
Again, I'll talk more about this on Sunday. The only way there's going to be peace in the region of the Middle East in Israel is when Messiah brings it. But it's going to cost something. It's going to cost a violent and brutal and bloody war. will precede the peace. Verse 41. Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. When Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, Why is the city making such an uproar? And while he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in for your valiant man and bring good news. But Jonathan replied to Adonijah, No, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king also has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king in Gihon and they have come up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar and this is the noise which you have heard. Besides Solomon has even taken his seat on the throne of the kingdom. Moreover the king's servants came to bless our lord king David saying may your God make the name of Solomon better than your name and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. The king has also said thus Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who granted one to sit on my throne today while my own eyes see it. Well, then all the guests of Adonijah were terrified. And they arose and each went his way. And Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, and he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. What's the deal with that? You're going to see this happen again in a few verses. Joab will do the same thing. When he finds that his life is in danger or thinks that his life is in danger, he rushes into the tabernacle. He goes up to the brazen altar where the sacrificing takes place, grabs onto the horns and says, You're not going to take me! Why does he do this? Kind of a bizarre thing to do. I think I would head for the hills, but they headed to the altar and grabbed onto the horns. The symbolism is, is very simply this. To grab onto the altar was to hang on to the place of God's mercy. And to remind your accuser or your attacker, look, this altar, God accepts our sacrifices and gives forgiveness, so won't you do the same thing for me? And so there he is, Adonijah, hanging on to the horns of the altar, wanting to be, wanting to be treated with the same mercy that God treated the people of Israel. It's interesting, Exodus chapter 21, verse 13, actually verses 12 through 14, address this ahead of time, because God always addresses things ahead of time. And he wrote this, Exodus 21, 12, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. In other words, if the death was accidental. If, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. In other words, God planned ahead. He said the altar is not to protect someone who is worthy of death. Someone who deserves by law to be killed doesn't get to cling to the altar. And even if he is clinging to the altar, you tear him from the altar and you kill him right there. Exodus 21, preceding all of this. We're going to see this play out with Joab in just a few verses. Going on to verse 50. So Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. He arose, he went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For behold, he's taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon said, If he is a worthy man, 
Not one of his hairs will fall to the ground. But if wickedness is found in him, he will die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and prostrated himself before King Solomon, and Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Now this is kind of cool, because Solomon is already starting to show some kingly wisdom. Number five in our, or number four in our list. Number four, if you've been keeping track of this. When we say the weakening of the king, the wrangling of the king's son, the will of the king, simply that Solomon would be on the throne, and now the walk of the king, verse 1 of chapter 2. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon and his son, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Side note, the way of all the earth. It's an interesting phrase. It is appointed to all men once to die, and then comes judgment. The wages of sin is death. The way of all the earth. Because we sin, we face death. And so David is speaking in this way and he says, Be strong, talking to his son therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do wherever you turn. So that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This is again the key verse of the books of Kings, the way in which a king was to walk. I want to read you a quote. Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary, said the following. He said, In the end... In the end, it is Torah that primarily occupies the interpretive energy of the narrative of the books of Kings. What does that mean? He says the Torah is the norm and measure of what is good and what is evil in the public process. Indeed, 1st and 2nd Kings are a Torah-focused assessment of the royal history of Israel. King David counsels his son Solomon to adhere to Torah. Solomon, however, is indifferent to it, is warned about the loss of land, and in the end, Solomon is judged harshly as a Torah violator. In complementary fashion, King Josiah at the end of the narrative is presented as the quintessential Torah keeper who functions as an alternative to Solomon. All this to say that Brueggemann believes that the books of 1st and 2nd Kings are about Torah. That the main focus isn't the temple, it's not the kings themselves, it's not the prophets. The main focus is Torah law, the word of God. And for those kings who will cling to the word, they will find success. They will find the joy of the Lord in their kingdom. But for those who don't, and most of them don't, they will find nothing but destruction and despair. And my friends, the word is no less important now as Torah was then. Not legalistically, not even studiously. In fact, if you look at Solomon's life, as we will, he was a big-time student. Solomon says in, in his writings, in Ecclesiastes specifically, I spent a lot of time, I poured myself into study. You know, Solomon tried it all. He tried wine, he tried women, he tried song, he tried study, he tried every different facet of life to see what would bring the most joy and comfort to him. And he said, of studying many books, there's great weariness. That's all Solomon discovered. That's why people can get into Bible study and get tired and space out and get bored. And why is that? Because it's about the study as opposed to the Savior. 
But you know, when you open the Word of God because you want to be in the presence of God, totally different thing. And that's why I say the Word is no less important now as Torah was then. The Word matters passionately as we meditate on it like recipients of a love letter. Whether a letter from our loving Father or a letter even from a lover, that's the way we approach Scripture. We look for Jesus because we are in love with Jesus. And as we read what goes on in the Scriptures, we, can't, we hang on every word because we love the author. Because we love the one about whom the word is written. And that's what God wanted to implant in the kings. David got it. He understood it. He said, I'm like a tree planted by streams of water. Meditating on your word day and night. Why did David do that? Because he wanted to be as close to the Lord as he possibly could. And that was to be the walk of the king. As the Deuteronomic law stated, the king was to be a man of the word. Now, these last words of David might surprise you. But in reality, there's simply, number five in our list, the warning of the king. The warning of the king. Look at verse five. Now you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. What he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He shed the blood of war in peace. Remember Abner, or remember Joab killed those two guys, Abner and Amasa, in cold blood. And got away with it, or so it seems. I guess nobody cared. David let it go. God didn't deal with him. He didn't get judged for it. He got to murder these guys and get away with it. Maybe not. It says he put the blood of war on his belt, about his waist, and on his sandals, on his feet. So act according to your wisdom, David says to Solomon, verse 6, and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. What's he saying? Joab's got to pay. He's saying, in essence, keep your eye on this one, because you're a man of peace, Shlomo, Solomon. You're a man of peace, and this guy's a man of war, and he is not to be trusted. Verse 7, But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite. Remember Barzillai? I don't know if you remember that guy. He, he's one of three men who, when David, as an old man, was on the run, he came and he served David and cared for David and took care of him. He says, be kind to Barzillai's sons. Well, his sons were now living there in the palace with David. And let them be among those who eat at your table. For they assisted me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Behold, verse 8, there is with you Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjamite of Bahurim. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to Mahanaim. <laughs> you remember Shimei running along, throwing stones, kicking up dirt, throwing dirt. David saying, I'd like you to be buried six feet under. He's cursing him. Well, Shimei is still in the picture. And David says, but when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, verse 9, do not let him go unpunished. <laughs> I wouldn't kill him, but Solomon, if you want to, that's fine with me says, you're a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do to him, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. And I was really disappointed. Because these are the last recorded words of David. There you go. David the poet. I mean, I, I would have liked David to say something about praise to the Lord, and walking with the Lord, and, and, and chasing after the Lord and the relationship with that, a psalm would be great but no the last words of David is bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood that's all we hear from David after this amazing 
But gang, it's the warning of one king to another. It's almost prophetic. David is telling Solomon who he can trust, who he had better keep an eye on, and it all plays out exactly as he warns. He's not necessarily saying, and I kind of thought this at first, that maybe he was saying, you need to execute these guys. He wasn't. He was saying, be wise, Solomon. Keep an eye on these guys. This Joab is not to be trusted. Shimei is not to be trusted. Take care of the sons of Barzillai. These were important matters from one king to the next. Verse 10 tells us then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. And Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. And David was concerned with just that establishing his son. Before he died, he wanted to be sure Solomon was firmly established on the throne. So he had that concern and he labels two men as troublemakers. Solomon will have to deal with them sooner as opposed to later. Now, we're going to finish this up and it will go quickly, but in this next section we're going to watch three executions take place on route to establishing peace. Solomon's going to have to do some house cleaning before people can kick back and relax. Remember again Solomon's name, which means peace. But before peace can settle on this kingdom, those who force conflict have to be dealt with. This is why Paul said to Timothy, young pastor Timothy, when he was advising him on how to choose elders for his church, Paul said, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. Don't be too quick to put someone in a position of authority or a position of rule or a position of oversight. Don't be too quick. Be careful. Walk it out slowly. It's better to wait than to jump into it quickly. And with this in mind, gang, peace never just happens. I wish it did. Boy, watching the world stage, I, I could very easily be someone who stands on the corner of, of Commercial and 12th Street in Anacortes with a sign that just says, Peace. I wish it worked like that. It doesn't. Not as long as there is sin in the world. Peace never just happens. It must be established. And the only way to establish peace is with the co-axles of mercy and justice. Mercy and justice. Again, we went to Bethlehem and then down to Hebron. And there was intense just tension there and the conflict you know what we see on the news the conflict is far worse it's far worse and I'm not talking about bombings and explosions and shootings and killings and all that that what we see is, is pretty accurate but the actual conflict itself and the hatred between these people groups is far worse than you can imagine I mean, you can see it in the eyes of the people. You can see it in the mistrust. As we're driving through Hebron in this taxi cab, and I'm going, is this thing bulletproof? <laughs> you know, because you can see just the, the mistrust of people looking at these outsiders coming in, wondering who these people were and, and what their back Are you Jewish? Are you Palestinian? What are you? The peace is not going to come to the region until the application of mercy and justice together. Yes, mercy, but also justice comes in the hands of Jesus. And this brings us to number six in the outline, the work of establishment. The work of establishing the king, and it begins in verse 13, now Adonijah, 
Remember, Adonijah tried to usurp the throne, tried to get it for himself. Well, here he is back in action again. Adonijah, the son of Agit, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. She said, you come peacefully? And he said, peacefully. And then he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, speak. So he said, you know that the kingdom was mine. And that all Israel expected me to be king. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Now I'm making one request with you. Do not refuse me. And she said to him, speak. And then he said, please speak to Solomon the king, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as a wife. See, now Adonijah noticed her too. Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak to the king for you. And Adonijah has, his, has Bathsheba completely snowed. Bathsheba thinks, okay, he lost the kingdom, he should at least get something. So I'll go speak on his behalf. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, verse 19. And the king arose to meet her and bowed before her and sat on his throne. And then he had a throne set for the king's mother and she sat on his right, truly the queen mother. And then she said, I am making one small request of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, ask my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah your brother as a wife. King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Why are you asking Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him, ask for him also the kingdom, for he's my older brother, even for him, for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Why is he mentioning these guys? What, what's Solomon doing here? Solomon smells a conspiracy. He realizes it's still going on. Adonijah wants Abishag the Shunammite and somehow Abiathar the priest and Joab they're involved in this Solomon is seeing this verse 23 then King Solomon swore by the Lord saying may God do so to me and more also if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life now therefore as the Lord lives who has established me and set me on the throne of David my father and who has made me a house as he has promised surely Adonijah shall be put to death today so King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him so that he died. Wow. It's a little intense. Lose your temper. The guy loses his life. But Solomon saw what was going on. That Adonijah was trying to undermine him. Why? By getting Abishag? Exactly. In the kingdoms of those days. Remember, we talked about this recently. You remember when Absalom went into David's concubines and slept with them in the presence of all Israel it was to gain access and authority over the kingdom if Adonijah now could get Abishag as his wife he has one more step toward being king himself he's just laid one more little piece of foundation stone to being the ruler he's trying to bit by bit eke away at Solomon's kingdom and Solomon realizes this and after being merciful to Adonijah when he was clinging to the horns of the altar now Solomon is saying that's it you're done you had your shot and so he has him executed and there are two other men in cahoots with Adonijah's desire for the throne Abiathar and Joab so read on verse 26 then Abiathar the priest to him the king said go to Anathoth your own field for you deserve to die but I will not put you to death this time at this time because you carry the ark of the Lord God before my father David and because you were afflicted in everything with which my father was afflicted 
So mercy. He lets Abiathar the priest off. But he says, you get out of here and you go live in your own field. So Solomon, verse 27, dismissed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh, which is interesting. The Lord said to Eli, your house is not going to serve me any longer. There's not going to be anyone of your house serving as a priest anymore because of what has happened in your house. And now we see this playing out these many years later with Abiathar as he is removed from office. Now, this continues on. We see the wisdom of mercy with Solomon and of justice, but it won't go so well for Joab. Verse 28. Now the news came to Joab, for Joab had followed Adonijah, although he had not followed Absalom. And Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. So now he's doing the same thing. And it was told King Solomon that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. And then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go fall upon him. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, Thus the king has said, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. And Benaiah brought word to the king again, saying, Thus spoke Joab. And thus he answered me. In other words, what do I do, Solomon? I, I, I mean, I can't go into the altar and kill him there. That, wouldn't that be, is there, is there a law about that? You're the king, you know, you should read the law. Well, what do I do? Well, so the king spoke to him, verse 31, said, Do as he has spoken. He wants to die there? Fine. Fall upon him and bury him that you may remove from me and my father's house the blood which Joab shed without cause. The Lord will return his blood on his own head because he fell upon two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword while my father David did not know it. Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. And so shall their blood return on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But to David and his descendants and his house and his throne may there be peace from the Lord forever. Then Benaiah the son of Jehoiada went up and fell upon him and put him to death. And he was buried at his own house in the wilderness. And the king appointed Benaiah the son of Jehoiada over the army in his place. And the king appointed Zadok the priest in the place of Abiathar. This is bloody. This is how peaceful Solomon begins his rule. By having these two different guys now killed, Adonijah and Joab, wiped out. But there's justice, gang, in these executions. Justice long deserved. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be, deserved, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Share this quote with you recently. The wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. Oftentimes what we do in one day is not immediately judged. In fact, God allows an awful lot of time for repentance and for us to seek forgiveness and for our confession. He is patient, not wanting, Peter said, any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so he waits and gives plenty of time but he doesn't forget those who will stand in opposition and rebellion. Now there's one more dude that's got to go. Verse 36. The king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build for yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there and do not go out from there to any place. For on the day you go out and cross over the brook to drone, you will know for certain that you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. Shimei then said to the king, The word is good. 
As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Shimei knew what the plan was? Do you think it was clear to Shimei what was going to happen if he left Jerusalem? He knew. But it came about at the end of three years that two of the servants of Shimei ran away to Achish, son of Maacah, king of Gath, that is Philistine country, and they told Shimei, saying, Behold, your servants are in Gath. Then Shimei arose and saddled his donkey and went to Gath to Achish to look for his servants. And Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath, which again is enemy territory. It was told Solomon that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned. So the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord? And solemnly warn you, saying, You will know for certain that on that day you will depart and go anywhere. You shall surely die. And you said to me, The word which I heard, which I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the command which I have laid on you? The king also said to Shimei, You know all the evil which you acknowledge in your heart, which you did to my father David. Therefore the Lord shall return your evil on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and fell upon him so that he died. At first reading, it looks a little harsh. Shimei just goes looking for a couple of rogue servants to bring them back. But Solomon is a wise king and he is reading something into this. Now I'm going to read something into this and I'm not saying that this is the way it was but there's a very strong possibility here. That Shimei was using going to get his servants as a guise for being in league with the king of Gath. Going into enemy territory with this excuse about his servants so that he could give information about what was going on inside of Israel and about Solomon. Shimei is a man who could not be trusted and Solomon knew this and David had warned him of it. So when Shimei goes and comes back, Solomon says, that's it. Your life is forfeit and he has him killed. But there's something we need to not miss here. Regardless of what the real factors were, and again, remember, we're not told the exact, precise history of every little thing that happened and why and what the motives were. We're just told what God wants us to know. What does God want us to know about Shimei? Very simply this, that Shimei left the place of mercy for judgment. He had the place of mercy. He had the mercy of Solomon. He had the freedom to live out his life there in Jerusalem as long as he didn't leave. But he left the place of mercy and chose instead the place of judgment. He knew he was tempting faith and brothers and sisters, so do we. When we leave the place of mercy and go into the place of judgment, we know exactly what we're doing. And the Bible says not only we as sons and daughters of the king, but all people know when they're leaving the place of mercy and heading into the place of judgment. Romans 1.18 Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. You ever wonder, how is it fair that people don't know about God and they might get lost in their sins? Guess what? The knowledge of God is evident in all men. Everybody knows Everybody has an awareness of God. He has put it there. 
He says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made, Paul says, so that they are without excuse. We have no excuse when we stand before the Lord. We can't stand before Him and go, well, that's really not fair. I didn't know. I had no idea. I didn't know you were real. Really, did you not live on the created world? Did you not enjoy the, the fruits of this? Did you not see the creativity? It amazes me. When you, when you talk about evolution, there's, a, there's an old uh, kind of an example that's, that's good to use with folks. And that's, take someone who, is, who doesn't believe in, in intelligent design and put a flower pot, a real pretty painted flower pot with a flower in it. Put that in front of them and say, okay, the flower pot, where did that come from? came from the store. Okay, but, but I mean before that. Well, somebody made it. How do you know somebody made it? Well, because, you know, it's shaped and painted and it's obviously it's designed by a man's hands. Okay, how about the flower coming out of the pot? Where did that come from? You're telling me after four and a half billion years it just kind of happened? Or is it possible that it was made? God says, you can look at what I've made and you're without excuse. People leave the place of mercy and choose instead judgment. People rebel and choose what's going to happen. And so God's mercy and God's justice are absolutely perfect. People clamor against God. They cry out, how could a loving God be so unfair? And the truth is, He has fairly given us the place of mercy. The place of mercy is walking in our Lord Jesus Christ. Walk in Jesus, you have mercy. You have eternal salvation. You have protection. You have covering. You have God's hand on your life. All you have to do is stay in the place of mercy. Walk with Jesus. Or you can choose to go to Gath, the place of judgment. And the question is, where are we going to walk? Where are we going to stay? The chapter ends with this statement. Thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. The kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon, and this is where we get to the word that I said I believe the Lord has for us tonight. The kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. The Hebrew here for established is the word kun, K-O-O-N, if you want to make an alliteration there, kun. It means to be made ready, to be fixed, to be certain, to be firm. David tells Solomon the Lord wants to establish his kingdom. And this is how to do it. Number seven in our outline, you do it by the way of the king. You want your kingdom to be established and firm and fixed. You want to be ready to rule. Then you walk in the way of the king. Back in chapter 2, back in verses 3 and 4, again, walk in his ways, David says to Solomon. Walk in his ways. This is how you rule Israel. This is how your kingdom is established. When you walk in his ways. The word for us tonight is the Lord wants us to be established for his coming kingdom. Made ready, fixed, certain, confirmed, solid, sure. He wants you to walk established in the knowledge of your salvation. Established as a son of the king established as a daughter of the king established as Revelation chapter 1, 5 and 20 tells us established as people 
who are going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in His kingdom. He wants us to be established. A couple more verses here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You want to be established in the Lord? Guess what? He wants to establish you. He wants to establish me. He wants to grow us up. He, he does, you know, we, we sit there sometimes week after week going, I'm so marginal and I just wish I could be stronger in my faith. And I just wish I could know the Bible better. And I wish I could pray a little more powerfully. And I, just, I wish I could do that. I wish I could grow up. The Lord wants that for you. This is not like something we need to go to the Father and say, Hey, listen, Lord, I was just wondering, can you help me know your word a little better? Because I, you know... Would that be alright? I mean, I don't want to impose. <laughs> but would that be okay with you to help me understand your word? I'd love to be able to pray more passionately and longer than, you know, two minutes before my mind goes off. Is, is, I, you know, is that too much to ask, Lord? And the Lord's saying, that's what I want for you. I want you to be established. I want you firm. I want you fixed in these things. That's, that's what I want. All you're asking is exactly what I want for you. To be established. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present in you. The establishment of God. And the way to be established for the coming kingdom is to be established in the Word who is Jesus Christ. To walk in the way of the king. The question to ask tonight, and as we continue with 1 Kings and on into 2, is this. Am I established in the way of the king? Am I established in the way of the king? Or am I out rushing off to Gath? Or trying to undermine the king to do my own thing? Am I trying to fight my own battles? Or am I established in the way of the king himself? Jesus said in John 14, 6, you know the verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Tragically, when we finish 2 Kings, we will be able to count the really good kings on one hand. Out of all the kings across 400 years of Israel's history, five or six. So if you have six fingers, you can count them all. Okay? They're not that many. Why? Because they didn't walk in the way of the king. And those who are good, those who do perform well, those who live for the Lord and are commended for their lives, they have one thing in common. They walked in the way of the king. They were established. Their kingdom was established in the Lord. And so the question, do you walk in the way of the king? Will you walk in the way of the king? Who reigns in your life? Is it you or is it the king? Let's bow and pray about this before we go tonight. Fathers, we open up these pages of scripture. We 
are confronted with the question each and every king of Israel was confronted with. And that is, who really reigns? Lord, there are so many of these men who completely forgot about you and their self-importance because they put themselves squarely on the throne. Completely forgetting about the one who put them there. Father, I pray if there is an ounce of self-importance in any of our lives that you would remove it and humble us that we might take the knee before you that in all things, whether we are successful or not, Lord, that, that our lives will be about worship and honor to you as our King. Whatever opportunities come before us, that we will bow to you as our King. We will always keep you first and foremost as the King and the ruler of our lives. And Father, I pray, asking you to do whatever it takes to keep us in that place of humility establishing us in your word by your spirit that we might grow up Lord in our salvation prepared fixed and certain of the kingdom to come and we know it's coming soon in Jesus name Amen